Good morrow, everybody, and welcome to Stories of Symmetry. This podcast strives to reveal beauty and purpose through another look at faith, the sacred, and the stories that unite us all. Enlightening us today is special guest, Pastor Todd Cutter, campus pastor at Lenore Rhine University. Todd, thank you for being here. Absolutely. Our bonus episode today is about collegiality in multiple senses of the word, the college experience, and also cooperation and civility between individuals. To keep us organized, this episode will be broken into five chapters. One, intro. Two, approaching self. Three, approaching others. Four, approaching variety and the great big world. And five, Todd time. I'm excited to jump right in. Todd, say the word and we'll get to it. All right, let's get started. Chapter 1, Introduction As an icebreaker, you earned your Master's of Divinity from Lutheran Theological Southern Seminary. That's right, yes. What was your favorite course? My favorite course was Hebrew. I really loved learning the language and learning how to translate from some of the original texts. So for people from the Western world, I don't think they appreciate how different Hebrew is from a Latin-based or Germanic-based language. So what are a few of the highlights? So obviously you read from right to left instead of left to right in Hebrew. Uh, And then there's this very unique thing called vowel pointing, where the Masoretes went through and added little symbols that identify what the different vowels are. So you end up having to look at this word as you're reading it and look underneath it for the most part to figure out what sound you're going to make, then trying to identify where the accent falls. All of these things have just, for me, honestly, were challenging because all I had in high school was French and a little bit in college. And so to have to learn this new language where gender is built into every word and to pull the words apart was, um, was challenging but fun. So did you ever learn it enough to dream in Hebrew? (laughs) No, but I learned it enough that it would be my party trick whenever I was (laughs) (laughs) uh, anywhere around people who weren't in seminary. I would say, you know, I can speak Hebrew and and, and not just Hebrew, but biblical Hebrew, because it's a bit different than the Hebrew that um, that we encounter now uh, in places like Jerusalem or Israel. And uh, and so I would. I'd have a couple Bible verses memorized that would just spout off (laughs) in that moment to show them that I could do that. What was your most challenging course? The most challenging course was theology. Uh, We had this brilliant professor who was so brilliant, it didn't compute well or translate well into the classroom. And so for the entire first semester of this year-long course, he thought my name was Mr. Cutler. Um, And... (laughs) I just couldn't connect with these really abstract ideas that he was presenting. And um, we didn't use a book. He had what's called his TypeScript, which was probably about a thousand pages long. And I remember I could make it through three pages before I just fell asleep and then woke up and was like, oh, I still have to read this whole chapter. So it just, it just, didn't, just didn't connect with me in a way that some of the more hands-on courses did. If a listener told us that he or she wanted to take only a single course in seminary, which would you recommend? 
I think I would recommend a good like intro to the Old Testament or Gospels course just to get kind of a really solid overview of um, either a couple of books of the Bible or like or one entire testament. Um, just because in those courses, there's enough richness that's presented that helps people kind of get past like the Sunday school lesson that they may have mm. had um, or some of the assumptions that we sometimes make about scripture. And I think those open up the world of scripture in a way that is not threatening, but also um, challenges some of those assumptions we hold on to. Throughout your pastoral career, you've been both a pulpit preacher at several churches and also a campus pastor at several colleges. Talk about how your role as pastor differs between those two types of positions. So one of the biggest differences between being on a college campus and being a parish is the calendar shifts. I'm part of a tradition that follows the very liturgical calendar of Advent, Christmas, Epiphany, Lent, Easter, season of Pentecost. And on a college campus, I might see students on the first Sunday of Advent, which is in December, but then I don't see them again until the middle of January. And so all of the responsibilities that come with like Christmas Eve or Easter Sunday or weekly Lent services just aren't a part of, of what I'm doing here anymore. It's also a bit different in that I think parish life is very structured, right? Today I'm going to do these hospital visits and then these homebound visits I'm going to offer pastoral care in these ways, run these meetings. On a college campus, uh, it's much more unstructured. I just never know what each day is going to bring, whether it's sitting in front of a computer all day and doing paperwork or encountering students in the cafeteria or showing up to pray for a football game. So there's just a little more freedom around scheduling. And, you know, on a college campus, you don't do as many hospital visits or funerals or baptisms or weddings that you would do in a parish setting. To help us better appreciate what you do, can you give us a quick walkthrough of a day in the life or maybe better a highlights of the week? Okay, I can try. <laughs> <laughs> so if I were choosing a typical week, I would spend some time early in the week getting ready for our weekly chapel service. We have chapel every Wednesday at 10. I'd also be making sure any of the organizations that I am the primary contact for are ready for their meetings, have everything that they need in place. One of the groups I work with, the Lutheran student group, that involved making sure I had enough pizza for a meeting or <laughs> that I had enough reservations for the escape room or that the bowling alley we were going to wasn't having league night. So there's <laughs> some of that sort of scheduling type stuff. Then there are meetings. I'm on different committees here. So I have to be at meetings. Uh, I have to meet with the person to whom I report on a regular basis. And then it's kind of being seen. So there are days that I leave my office and take my computer and work in the student center or in the coffee shop or just show up in the cafeteria and sit so that I can interact with students and faculty and staff. So a good bit of what I do, too, is just kind of like walking around mm -hmm. and saying hello and, and seeing how people are doing. Do you teach classes? I don't now, but I'll be teaching one in the fall. I'll be teaching one of our what's called FYE, first year experience classes. Mm -hmm. And one of the great things about that is half the content is provided. Like there are things that we want students to learn about Lenore Rhyme, but the other half I get to invent. And so I will be offering a class on how we stay connected with our faith 
throughout college and through those times where we're questioning and doubting and uncertain and just kind of learning more about who we are and what we believe. Final sort of get to know you question. What was it like to be your college mascot? Well, you know, it was it was uh, it was fascinating. And the only reason I was the college mascot is I worked in the admissions office as a student. And one of the admissions counselors was the cheerleading coach. And I came back from a semester abroad and said to her, hey, I went to a basketball game the other night and noticed Joe Bear wasn't there. And she goes, oh, we, we don't have anybody to be the mascot. I said, well, I'll do it. And she said, OK, fine, do it. So it was a lot of fun. It was great to interact with the fans. It was hot at football games. Like I remember my first football game, I had to run off the field into one of the buildings and take the mascot head off because I was certain I was either going to vomit or faint because it was so hot. (laughs) But yeah, it was just, it just kind of gave me fun, gave me fun, gave me a chance to screw around and have fun. The worst part though was when I started the costume we had smelled like I no can amount, imagine if it's hot and sweaty. <laughs> yeah. No amount of, of laundering or dry cleaning helped it. So they ordered a new one, but it was a really terrifying looking bear. And like children would cry. One day I thought I would help a kid out and I would show the kid I, I'm just a person. And so I pulled the head off and this kid starts screaming, the bear ate that man, the bear ate that man. <laughs> and so I kind of learned then that... Uh, If kids were afraid, it was going to help them to find out it was just a person inside. Chapter 2, Approaching Self. The collegiate experience, one's season at university, is a challenging period of finding oneself. And I think that this is particularly trying for one's faith also. And so it's worth thinking about the approach to self. Ideally, students undergo the rigors of college education because they need advanced training for a particular field. But the reality is, and I myself was very much in this boat, is that a vast swath of college students have no idea what they want to do with their lives. If there is any particular thing they should be doing, and how big of a problem is it if that answer isn't forthcoming? So Todd, how do you help students with these sorts of identity crisis and what we would call a vocational struggle? Oh, wow. That, that is a great question. Um, and I love the phrase identity crisis. I have a good friend who says that college is a four-year identity crisis. And I, I think... It feels that way. Yeah. I think there's some, some truth to that. So I generally find when people are in that place of struggle, they don't want to come to me for advice. They don't want me to tell them like, oh, well, if you just use the... Uh, the labyrinth on campus and pray that every day you're going to feel great or just, you know, read Psalm 23 and life will be better. They really just want to come and have somebody say that what you're going through is valid. It is normal to be in this place of uncertainty. It's typical to uh, come to college and realize that so often what we believe is tied closely to what our parents taught us. And then as you're hearing all these different things from professors and from speakers and from others on campus, it's good to just take a moment and say, wait a second, I I know what I believe, but I really need to figure out why I believe it. So I just listen and um, validate and always end by saying, now, do you you want some advice or do you want to just talk? Is... 
the role you're in now where you envisioned yourself years ago? Or did you have some changes of vocation yourself? It's not where I envisioned myself. When I got to college, I didn't know what I wanted to do. And so I started out as an English major. I was convinced that I was going to teach seventh and eighth grade. And that was because I had this incredible uh, teacher in high school that just made me fall in love with English. So I started taking English courses here, and I had a professor that made me fall out of love with English. (laughs) And I didn't know what was next. So I was like, well, I like music. I'll be a music major. And I was a declared music major for about six weeks. Into my freshman year hits, I still don't really know what I have to do. I'm feeling the pressure to declare, and I finally chose elementary education. I thought that I was going to be called into the classroom. Um, I was not called into the classroom. So I'm working at LR, and I start taking courses for a master's in mental health counseling because I was convinced that I was going to take my elementary ed, and I was going to take the mental health piece, and I was going to counsel kids. For me, I, I never wanted to go to seminary. It was never on the horizon. And then when I look at kind of how life unfolded and the things that I started doing and getting involved with, I can see that kind of natural progression. But certainly when I went to seminary, I assumed I would be in a parish for my entire career. I didn't really think campus ministry was going to be on the radar at all. What made you choose to pursue seminary? So while I was working in the admissions office, I was volunteering with the state of North Carolina's Lutheran Youth Organization. And through that, I met um, a pastor who lived in Lincolnton, North Carolina, about a half hour away. And he said, hey, we need somebody to run our youth ministry program. And we are going to pay you for five hours a week. And so (laughs) all you have to do is come down on Sunday, be at worship, run the youth program. We think you can do it in five hours a week. And I was like, yeah, that sounds great, right? Of course, five hours a week is totally reasonable for a youth ministry program. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and um, I fell in love with the church. I had a group of about 20 to 25 7th through 12th graders that were just really engaged and interested in being a part of the group. And while I was serving at that church, the pastor knew that if he asked me if I wanted to go to seminary, I would say no. So instead, what he started to do was say, hey, I want you to help me lead worship this week. Or, hey, have you ever thought about preaching? Would you like to preach a sermon? I'll help you, you know, make sure that since you've never done this, that you write a good one and that it kind of fits within the bounds of, of the context. And through those experiences, I started to realize that I, I like being in a church. I like being involved with ministry. And um, frankly, towards the end of the time there, the church decided that they either needed to call a second pastor or they needed to hire me full time pastor who was there at the time ended up with two funerals on the same day. And that was when the church realized they needed a second pastor instead of a full-time youth person. And so this is a good time to transition. I thought, why not? I'll go to seminary, do it for a year, prove everybody wrong, because lots of people had told me I should go. And with each passing year, doors continued to open. And 18 years later, here I am. Here you are. So other than identity crises and vocational struggles. What are some of the other biggest struggles that you see students have? Students are really struggling with engagement. And I think that comes on the tail end, hopefully, of this pandemic in that for for two years, everybody got ingrained in this very um, insular kind of, I sit in front of my computer, 
I do classes, I do meetings, but I don't have to interact with anybody. So finding ways to get students excited about being a part of typical campus life things is, is a struggle, I think, at every, every college campus. From, from the colleagues that I talk to, everybody is struggling with engagement. I think there are the typical college struggles, right? So what are you going to do about alcohol and drugs and relationships and those types of things? I think those will always be at play. But the engagement is the one that kind of stands out the most for me as helping people learn again how to be together. Be it with engagement or academic or otherwise, have you noticed any patterns of the people that fare well during these formidable college years? I think the people who, who do the best are the ones who are willing to take risks, who will say, okay, I know that I'm about to walk into this student group and I may not know anybody else there, but I'm interested enough that I want to be a part of something more than just going to class, going back to uh, my dorm or my apartment. I also think those with a sense of curiosity fare really well, that when they come in almost saying, all right, challenge me, right? Challenge me and challenge what I say and what I believe so that I can grow stronger in those areas. I think those students do well. And I think students who don't view college as a consumer choice, right? This idea of, well, I'm paying you, so you need to give me these things, but more as a time to kind of sit at the feet of people who are very learned and very smart and sort of soak in their knowledge and the skills that they can pass on. And those students who are engaged with their faculty, I think just find post-college life a lot easier because these are the people who know about job openings, who have connections, who, if they know you, can really write a strong letter of recommendation. So those would be the, the main things, I think. And it's probably fair to say that most faculty, if not pretty much all, want their students to come and engage with them and, and are happy to. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> Sometimes when I'm talking with faculty, they'll say, oh, students never stop by the office for office hours anymore. And there's part of me that's shocked because I'm like, oh my gosh, that was my favorite thing to do was just walk down the, the hallway where the professors were and be like, hey, you got a minute? And so that goes back to that engagement issue, right? How do we re-educate people about those spaces where they can have these one-on-ones and interact with their peers and with faculty? Chapter three, Approaching Others. Todd, this chapter is all about you and how you approach others. The LR campus has a diverse student body. So how do you conduct the campus ministry and the church services? So our chapel services are always going to be Christian in nature. We are a church-affiliated college. We're affiliated with the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. And I can offer a Christian worship service. I can't offer a service from another uh, faith tradition because it would be so inauthentic. People would just immediately sniff out that I was just trying to play at this other uh, tradition for the day. But outside of those weekly chapel services, there's been this sort of intentional push to say, okay, so how do we honor the religious diversity on campus? 
One way we do that is by exploring whether or not we can find prayer spaces for other faith traditions or meditation spaces that don't have Christian-themed artwork or items in them, but would be appropriate for uh, the daily prayer for Muslims or for somebody who wanted to meet with a yoga class. So finding those types of things, lifting them up is important. I also try to share information about all the, the other religious group holy days via a weekly email that I send out. I always include a link where students can click on it and learn a little bit more. But this is a way to help acknowledge that uh, there are other people out there who are celebrating different things. And that's been particularly well received by our faculty because we do have some faculty on campus who are Jewish, some who are Muslim, some who are Buddhist. And having at least some tip of the hat to what their faith life is like has been helpful in that regard. Through a grant that I received, we've also been working with a group of faculty, and hopefully next year we'll include students to make sure that every year we have an intentional focus on another faith tradition, where we invite a leader from that faith uh, community to come in and share insights or information with us, where we try some of the foods that might be traditional to that community around one of their main celebrations, and then where we watch uh, some TV shows or movies that present people from that faith tradition in a positive light so that, again, we can learn more about our neighbors. Whereas the advice of most pastors is sought by members of his or her congregation. Right. Todd, you're in a less common position of serving people outside of Lutheranism, Christianity, and even the notion of faith itself. Being a Christian, you're commanded by Jesus to spread the gospel and make disciples. Mm-hmm. And yet you are professionally bound by ethical and perhaps legal restrictions to respect that some people you counsel might want nothing to do with that faith. Here's a two-part question. So when is it appropriate to explore faith with a student, um, even to the point of potentially evangelizing? And two, how do you help people through issues while remaining sensitive to both of your possibly differing beliefs? Yeah, I mean, I think those are are, are really great questions because... You know, there are some who would say, because I'm not actively evangelizing, that I am I'm not truly a pastor, that I'm mm. not really living into my role. Evangelism, for me, always has to be rooted in relationship. I read a book in seminary where the author compared uh, sort of street corner evangelism to being flashed in a park. That mm. someone invades your space, you don't have any relationship with them, they throw something at you that maybe you don't want yourself exposed to, and then they leave, right? And you're left with that sense of, oh my, oh my God, what just happened, right? What, what went on here? And I really thought that that was a good reminder not to engage in flasher evangelism. So for me, when I'm meeting with students, I know that faith or spirituality, however people define that, is part of who they are as a whole person. And one of the, one of the big pushes here at Lenore Rhine is to make sure that we're educating the whole person. So I listen to their story. I learn from them. If they're coming to me for counseling, I will say, hey, do you want to talk about faith? Because we can do that. Um, Or do you not want to? And if they want to, we're going to talk about the ways that faith not only helps them, but how it also might hinder them. 
Uh, because, you know, sometimes things like that good old religious guilt really hinders us, mm-hmm. right? And so I learned their story. And after I built that relationship with them, then that's when I'm able to answer questions from students like, so why are you a Christian? What does that mean to you? Why are you rooted in that particular faith? And that's when I tell the story. And it's been wonderful here in that at least this past year, there was one student who had never, ever gone to church and poked their head into chapel one week and was like, hey, there's something to this and heard me say, I'm leading a Bible study on Wednesday. And that student was like, okay, fine, I'll come to that. And she she shows up and there are only two people at the Bible study. And I go through, we were actually studying the book of Revelation, which, you know, is a great, great book if you're <laughs> yeah, new to the faith. To Christianity. Yeah. Um, and I, at the end of it, I said, hey, you know, invite friends, right? Uh, but as long as there are two of you here, we'll do this. And I came back the next week and she had invited seven people. So here's this person new to the faith that because we created space for her, and I'm not going to just claim it was me, but because as a campus, we created space for her to be a seeker, right, became like this amazing example of evangelism. And so the rest of the semester, we had this great group at the Bible study, and it helped me connect with different students and to hear their perspectives and, and again, build those relationships. And I just have a curiosity when students meet with me, if they are not Christian, I want to know why, like why that faith they cling to, what it what it gives them, what it how it's, how it supports them and feeds them and builds them up. And then, you know, as I learned that, then I get to share my perspective too. And if a a student were to come to you for counseling Mm -hmm. and you ask the question, do you want to talk about faith? Do you have a faith, anything like that? They say, no, I I, I really don't feel like discussing that. Is it okay to not? I mean, do, do you feel comfortable just letting faith not be a part of it until possibly if that person brings it into the picture. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Being trained um, in mental health counseling, for me, that is, that's one of those non-blurry boundaries, is if somebody comes to me and says, I need counseling, I want to talk through this issue, if, if they don't want faith to be a part of it, all I'm going to do is push them away. If I say, no, no, too bad, faith has to be a part of it. Mm-hmm. What, I'm, what I almost always find, though, is that people will at some point start talking about things that are helpful for them or practices they cling to. And that sort of opens the door for me to explore a little bit more because when we start getting into when I do this thing, it helps me feel better. People are are practicing a faith of some sort, right? They may say, I don't believe in god but i sure believe in running and so that that sort of opens that door to sort of start asking questions about okay so what is it about that belief is so important to you right that that helps you that you cling to i almost always find that when people come to me for counseling and they know that i'm a pastor almost always it will eventually lead to some story about their interactions with the church and what that's done for them throughout throughout their lives one of the things that I've loved is that at least a couple times this year, students have come to me to talk about faith, but it's because they're questioning something that I've said in an email 
or sent out through the whole community. And they want to know why, as a Christian, I'm responding the way that I am. And it's, and it's been fascinating because those discussions, usually we find that we don't agree on much, right? But then those students I still see on campus, we still enjoy interacting with each other and catching up and how's your day going and, and almost that sense of, hey, we believe differently. Uh, it's not threatening at that point. So that's been, I applaud our students for not letting it be threatening if we believe differently, but also, again, it just, it just seems to, once that relationship is there, it just seems to ground more of what future conversations look like. That sounds like a fantastic segue into chapter four, approaching variety and the great big world. And in this chapter, we are asking how to approach a diverse world of cultures, faiths, viewpoints, denominations, traditions, etc. In our current day and age, especially at places like college campuses, there's strong encouragement to meet people from different walks of life and get to know them, not as others, but as people, and to respect and value differences. But one unfortunate side effect that is sometimes experienced is the belittling of self, especially if any part of that self is in a majority. So here's the first really challenging question of the day. How can people respect and value others while not denying oneself nor belittling one's origins? Mm. So I'm going to steal from language that isn't mine. One of the great uh, phrases tossed around by Lutheran colleges in general is that we are rooted and open. And so what that means is I can be rooted in my Christianity, in my faith, without someone who is not Christian, without that being a threat, right? So I can say, yes, this is, this is who I am. This is what I believe. But you are not a danger to me because you practice a different faith, because you don't cling to any particular faith. And, and I love that idea of being rooted and open at the same time. And I think that's what we have to do is we have to, dis, we have to, if I feel threatened by somebody else, I have to first ask myself why. And sometimes, sometimes I find that people feel threatened when they're a little shaky in their own faith. I was working with a group of uh, high school students a few weeks ago, and I was talking about this idea of being rooted and open and I asked them, I said, what's hard about that? And one of them said, well, I guess I'm afraid that, like, what if somebody says something and I change my mind? What if I decide I don't want to be a Christian anymore because of what somebody tells me? And I'm like, yep, that fear sometimes shuts us down, right? That when we're afraid, we'll be like, nope, don't want any part of that. And usually when we're trying to protect ourselves in that way, we'll end up pushing people away and one of the best ways we push people away is by belittling them, mm -hmm. by demeaning them, by making fun of them. I think when we're uncertain and we're struggling, it's easier for us to choose those behaviors because it makes us feel in control. So I think the first thing is we've got to unbox God. It is so much easier if I can keep God in a little God box because then I've created boundaries around who God is. But if I let that image of God that we see in Scripture and over and over again, which is 
an amazing abundance, more than we ever need, just spilling out all over the place. I have to be ready to say this God that's bigger than I can imagine might be big enough to include others, right? In ways that I can't even dream right now. Thinking of others, would you say it's good or, or even we could ask, is it acceptable for people to explore different faiths or different denominations or sub-traditions within their faith? And if they're embarking on that exploration, to what extent? Right. I, I think it is good. I think it is good to to allow ourselves that space to simply learn, right? So I remember in, in high school, one of the best Sunday school classes I ever took was when we studied all the other, uh, not all, but a number of the other all Christian the traditions. Major. Right. And so we would, we would study, like we studied Catholicism that week. And then the next week we would go to church at a Catholic church. And I remember things like walking in there and seeing classmates from school and being like, had no idea you were Catholic, right? <laughs> and and so that for me was formative because it taught me that there are many different ways to go about praising and worshiping God, right? And there are many different traditions wrapped around that that um, sometimes make things richer, right? Um, in terms of other faith traditions, I think that all of them have something to teach us. So I... I'm a big proponent of meditation opportunities for students on campus, right? Whether that's yoga or whether it's a Buddhist form of meditation or simply a secular form of meditation. Why? Because through those practices, we learn about self-care and we have this call from God to care for ourselves. And, and I think the biggest thing is learning about others is going to help because at the end of the day, People are going to leave this campus and wherever they go, where, whether it's to work or who they choose to be in relationship with, they are going to constantly be surrounded by people who believe differently. And thank God they'll be able to speak with some knowledge about that. Oh, I know a lot about Judaism because when I was at college, I learned about the Jewish faith from these people or through these experiences. That's the kind of thing that I dream will happen here that will, again, be just sending people out into the world that are able to encounter others with some pre-existing connection that's already there. If we tread down the dangerous path of speculation, mm -hmm. uh, there are a lot of groups that would be rather opposed to the idea of even scholarly exploration of another mm. faith, let alone let's go to Catholic Mass and see how they do it. Not knowing everyone's reasons, but why do you think some people would stress their resistance to exploration? And why are you more favorable towards it? I don't know that I could speak to why people are resistant to it beyond general untested theories. But again, I think it kind of goes back to what I was saying earlier is that I think sometimes we try to control who God is or what others learn because we're afraid. Think about decisions that parents make. They make some of them because they have to, and they make some of them because they're afraid. I'm afraid if you go to college that you might change. Um, or 
I, I don't want you to be with these people because I'm afraid you'll get mixed up in a culture that we don't agree with or, or whatever, right? But, but sometimes it's, it's out of fear. For other people, it is just, I think, just a, I am firm. This is it. This is what we allow. This is what we don't allow in the story, right? I think for other people, it is just that much of a commitment to a particular way of thinking. I approach it differently. And, you know, as pastor, I'm going to quote scripture, right? You know, because sometimes people will say, well, but Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. And I'm like, yeah, but Jesus also says no one comes to the father except through me. And as one of my dear friends says, I'm not arrogant enough to claim that I know what that means. Because what it clearly says is Jesus is in charge. Jesus is the one who brings people through to the father, but it doesn't say how Jesus will go about that. And this is the same Jesus who said, earlier in John's gospel, I have sheep and other folds you don't know anything about. And so for me, that openness comes from my particular sort of upbringing and training as a Lutheran, which is God's grace is so much bigger than I can imagine that I can either spend my time saying who's in and who's out. And some days the list is going to be short and some days it's going to be long, right? Or I can go down blazing on the side of grace to say these people who believe differently are not outside of the love and grace of a God who consistently shows more love and grace than we can imagine. So why not learn about others? In the struggle to approach variety in the great big world and others, Christianity has the idea of theological exclusivity. You just pointed on that. We don't understand enough about Jesus to make an assertion on what's in, what's out, what's right and wrong. But how can Christians take that idea of the theological exclusivity, but resist the notion that non-Christian equates to bad person? I think the best thing that Christians can do is accept there's more to God than we can possibly know. That our sort of exclusive claim about who Jesus is and what that means does not mean that any of us have the wisdom and the knowledge to condemn others and that um, it's okay. I have yet to have anybody tell me how it harms me as a Christian that someone is non-Christian, right? It, it doesn't. And until I build a relationship with that person learn their story, have space to tell mine, the church will continue to push people away and turn them off if we simply look at others and go, well, no, you're not in. Well, no, God doesn't love you. And and that's, I think that's what we have to come to terms with is the fact that someone isn't a Christian does not harm us. In fact, it gives us a chance to truly follow what Jesus says was the second greatest commandment which is to love your neighbor as yourself. And the most loving thing I can do for my neighbor, the most loving thing I can do is say, your story is just as valid as mine. Chapter five, Todd time. Todd, this is your time, if you want it, to freestyle, if you will and share any additional thoughts which our listeners throughout the world might enjoy. So the floor is yours. 
Yeah, it's dangerous to give a pastor the floor and say, say what you want, right? I can set a stopwatch. Yes, that that might not be bad. (laughs) That might not be bad. For those entering college for the first time or for the second time, like if you're going back for a graduate degree, I would say soak it all up. This is your chance. Soak it all up and make it your goal to be able to put words behind what you cling to. I think so few of us can do that. And, and, and I, think it, it, I think it's across all things, not just religion. If somebody asks me, well, why are you a member of that political party? I don't know. I, 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 I like what they're saying right now, right? But, but how often we're asked to fully sort of explain, wait, here's why. So soak it all in, take this time to figure out your why. And, you know, maybe now that I say that I shouldn't limit it to just college students, I think we all have to figure out our why. And I think it changes for us throughout time, right? I think that depending on life events and the context we're in, it changes. So having that desire to figure out your why is something I hope that I will continue to do as well as I hope everybody else will. Because sometimes it's just easier to say, well, I don't know. Which I think is, okay, so the second piece is say, I don't know, right? Like, I think that is so important as people of faith when somebody says, what about this? To be able to go, you know what, I just just don't know. And when we don't know, it's easier to make things up, right? (laughs) So being able to say, I don't know. And as much as possible, I hope that all of us will let our faith be (laughs) squishy, not so static that we can't uh, allow our mental furniture to be rearranged. I, again, thinking back to one of my seminary professors, they compared life in the church and being a pastor and interacting with others to like the game of Jenga. But they said, your point is never to remove a block without sliding something in behind it to take its place. So the tower never falls because as something gets pushed out, there's something coming in its place to offer that support. And so, you know, that, that sort of idea of scripture is this living word. It's this address that changes our lives. So allowing it to continue speaking to us and changing us and shifting things for us, I think is really important because the foundation is there. Sometimes the best mental tricks are the most unexpected ones. So I think if we keep in our mind the concept of squishy faith, that'll be helpful. Yeah, I I hope so. I hope so. I think a squishy faith is a wondering faith. And it's through wondering and asking and digging more deeply that we become more certain of what we believe. Thank you, Todd, once again, for taking time to share your thoughts and help us wrestle through collegiality and the difficult questions it presents. Absolutely. I enjoyed it. And to the listeners, thank you for joining Stories of Symmetry today. This podcast strives to reveal beauty and purpose, and we hope that you experience that today. If you did, then I encourage you to share this podcast with the people in your life. Stories of Symmetry is between seasons right now, but during this interstition you can find blogs, previous episodes, and more online at storiesofsymmetry.com, or on Facebook and Instagram, at Stories of Symmetry. Be on the lookout for announcements about Season 3, and until next time, go with God, go in peace.